First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. During my second visit in Elaine in March, I met a number of people involved in the Elaine Legacy Center. Faye Duncan Daniel put me up for the night at her home in Helena, West Helena, the county seat of Phillips County, about 25 miles north of Elaine. James White, program director of the Elaine Legacy Center, who you saw in the video about the massacre, took me on a tour around Elaine, showing me sites of the massacre and the two sides of town. I'd like to share with you their life stories that they shared with me. This photo of Faye is from our morning walk along the Mississippi. Faye's story. I am the firstborn daughter of Fred and Louise Duncan of Ratio, Arkansas, six miles down the road from Elaine, and was born in 1945. My birth was just the beginning of a very large family of Duncans. My position as firstborn put me in a unique position to have to grow quickly to meet family expectations. I was always expected to care for the younger family members who never seemed to stop arriving, screaming, and demanding care. Their dependence convinced me that I would not make a good parent, so I avoided situations where my virtues were compromised. My early childhood was happy and full of adventure. Lots of berry hunting, fishing, or just hanging out finding four-leaf clovers was my favorite fast pastime. I spent a great deal of two- and three-year-old time with my grandmother, where I was chased and pampered by her three young children. I will always love them and cherish the love they gave me. My earliest memory is of the death of a sister, Dorothy B. Duncan, who died in childbirth. She was four days old. I remember my father burying her in the backyard. There was a sadness in a house, usually loud with laughter and activity. At about the age of seven, I was assigned tasks I always resented. The tasks were labor-intensive with low productivity and no reward. Yet, my family prevailed and thrived as all the other families and loved ones nearby. Church was a personal demand of my father's. My father would often use the Bible to make a point, but always had a joke negating the, his point. Mother was an usher, but she rarely used the Bible to make a point. I started school at five years old. My father walked me to school the first day, and along the way, he pointed out landmarks. He told me I would have to learn my way alone the next day because he had to work and mother had younger children at home. So I tagged along with the children I recognized, never getting lost. That experience so shaped my decisions in life. I was never afraid of getting lost. I launched myself into school and learning as frequent conversations around adulthood set, centered on getting an education. I was an excellent student and took it as a source of pride. Gangly and unattractive as a young woman, being able to answer questions in class was my ticket to popularity. Since I'm of African descent and my parents were sharecroppers, I was required to work in the cotton fields during peak seasons in the fall and spring. We usually started school in November or December, decisively behind those starting in September. 
It was in the cotton fields of Arkansas I realized hard work was not a way out of poverty. I watched black men and women work themselves to death, literally, and they never had money for burials and never left anything to relatives and never enjoyed a quality of life during life. Life on a plantation was labor-intense, dirty, and the compensation was always minimal. I could always catch up at school until the 10th grade. When I returned, my classmates were speaking French and taking trigonometry. I was too embarrassed, hurt, and angry to want to continue. So I wrote to my paternal grandmother in Fortis, Arkansas, 140 miles southwest of Elaine, south of Little Rock, and asked to live with her and attend school full time. She consented and my parents took me to live with her. I did exceedingly well my junior year and was college bound. Then my grandmother died unexpectedly. I had met a very handsome young man visiting his family back in Fortis during my tenure. He returned from Las Vegas to take me to the prom. My grandmother's death meant I was returning to the cotton fields, water hauling, and parenting I so dreaded. So I agreed to marry him and move to Las Vegas. My last conversation leaving Arkansas was with my uncle who challenged me to continue my education. My young husband and I moved into a trailer with his grandmother. We had our own trailer within a month, but it was repossessed five months later. I ignored the signs. My young husband was gambling. Educational programs were being offered through the state of Nevada, so a neighbor of mine, my husband, and I signed up. We were taught typing in English. After the program was complete, we were referred to companies for hire. This was 1965, and the Civil Rights Bill was passed. We were often offered jobs as maids or cooks, but we persisted and overcame the racial barriers erected to diminish us and keep us in poverty. We kept knocking on doors, worked like dogs, and listened to people less competent than us analyze us. We joined hands, trained each other, and became lifelong friends and comrades. We took classes together at the university and continued to improve our skills and experiences. My marriage was floundering when I became pregnant with my only child who was born special needs. My attention to her deepened the rife in the floundering marriage until one afternoon it erupted in words and blows. I packed my nine-month-old child and moved in with a friend. I continued to gain skills, confidence, and experience that allowed me to make friends with white women easily. They never seemed to mind telling you all their business and everyone else's they knew. Before I landed a job, I was the test case for the NAACP. I had mad typing skills, and that was the only requirement for employment in those days. I excelled and understood the nuances of interviewing and getting the job. My child's condition required continued care. I had to live with other women who had children so we could exchange services, an easy task for me. I soon got tired of those arrangements and decided to move to Boston, where my family had relocated. Living in Boston was not for me. It, always, it was always too something, too cold, too windy, too wet, too fast too unfriendly, too much traffic, too many immigrants, just two. I attended a year of college while there, much value in that. 
I returned to Las Vegas, determined to be successful, and found my niche after landing a plum job at a newly opened hotel. After 18 years at the hotel, I was fired, along with all the upper management, and found employment with the County of Clark. I found a great job with a judge who I befriended during a plane ride to Los Angeles. The county job offered so many opportunities. I worked first for the judge, then the constable's office. Finally, I was transferred to juvenile detention. I worked as the administrative assistant to the assistant director, a statuesque, beautiful, unapologetic woman who trusted my work and allowed me to explore ways to retire. I worked for the county for 16 years until the director resigned amid scandal. My assistant director retired, leading me to retire. By that time, I had founded six organizations and worked to promote the value of family and community and was completely worn out. I wanted to spend my time with my daughter, so I retired and moved to Arkansas where I live today, studying, lecturing, and connecting with my community in meaningful ways. I lost my daughter in 2016. I had 10 unencumbered years of agape love that I will always cherish. As for Elaine, it has what most towns have, lots of ideas and limited resources. Elaine lacks cohesiveness and vision or resources to provide either. Elaine, like most human endeavors, suffers from a lack of resources. What resources are available are unevenly distributed and are divided among racial lines. In Elaine, economic differences are dramatized by division of North and South with Main Street, the natural line of demarcation. Whites live on the South side and until recently, the North side was predominantly inhabited by African-Americans and it was referred to as the quarters. A closer look at the white side of town reveals their levels of poverty, which raises the question, really? Their appearance betray an illusion of an enviable quality of life. Elaine does have potential. They have Mary Olson, a white Presbyterian minister, and Lenora, Mal Lenora Marshall the, to pull and push to provide the community with resources. James White, the most popular person in Elaine, is known for his dedication to the people in Elaine. Under their stewardship, Elaine will continually grow into a vibrant town and a source of pride for all Arkansans. That was written by Faye Duncan Daniel. I composed the following portrait of James White, program director of the Elaine Legacy Center, after listening to his oral history recording and visiting with him on an extended phone call. James. James White was born in the doctor's office in Elaine, Arkansas, and began his early years on his grandparents' farm near Ferguson, 15 miles south of Elaine. At some point, his parents moved to Chicago for better jobs while he stayed on the farm with his grandparents. He remembers going to the cotton field with his grandmother while she had to work. He was fascinated by the cotton and wanted to try picking, but his grandmother never let him give it a try. They also had a vegetable garden and some livestock, including hogs. There were always chores to do every day. James started school in an all-black school in ratio. After third grade, public schools were desegregated and he had to attend school in Elaine. It seemed to him the quality of his education suffered after that. In Elaine, he learned about the drainage ditch that ran through the town from east to west. 
This was the line you did not cross after sundown. James didn't understand why people would throw rocks at them or sick dogs on them if you got too close to the line. In the mid-70s, his grandfather died, and he and his grandmother went to live with family in Chicago. Life was so crowded and noisy compared to life back in Elaine. James found a good friend, and together they avoided peer pressure and stayed out of trouble. After two years, he and his grandmother returned to Elaine, escaping the big city. James didn't learn much about Black history at school. He remembers hearing about the death of MLK on the radio, but he never knew much about it. History of the 1919 massacre he learned from his grandmother, who was 15 at the time of the riots. She was very traumatized by the experience and was always very careful to make sure her children and grandchildren were safe. She always encouraged them to become independent business owners and never work on a farm. In high school, James remembers how students were treated unfairly by the faculty. One year, the staff wouldn't let the Global Studies class take a field trip to the MLK Museum. Students protested at the school board meeting to get to go. Counselors would never send Black students to visit colleges like the white kids. In driver's ed, he recalls taking the test with two girls, one Black and one white. Both girls failed, but the white girl got to try again right away instead of waiting 30 days to repeat the test as required by the rules. She still failed. After high school, James and some friends moved to Texas. James stayed in Dallas at first where he had a sweetheart, but eventually joined his friends in Louisville, 25 miles to the north. He found work as a janitor and then worked on the line producing computer chips for Texas Instruments. After a couple of years, his grandmother got sick, so he went back to be with her until she passed away. He always thought Texas was too hot, so he stayed in Elaine and worked construction, repairing concrete foundations for large gas tanks. He started his own business selling merchandise out of his van. Over the years, this morphed into a convenience store called The Spot that he still owns today. Also along the way, he married twice and had about a dozen kids. He's proud to say that none of them have ever had to work on a farm. In 2006, the schools in Elaine were closed and merged with the Marvel School District to the north. Around this time, one of James' sons was getting summer work with the help of Reverend Mary Olson at Waves of Prayer Church in the old elementary school building. James started helping out and developed the idea for the Elaine Legacy Center to offer different services needed in the town. They educate kids about the local history, offer after-school homework space and summer programs, a food pantry, a clothes closet, a book room, a computer room, and had a program with the bank to help teach the kids how to save money and make money from their artwork. Another project James is working on involves finding, identifying, and recording family cemeteries and grave sites so farmers don't remove the stones and plow over them. The idea for the Elaine Museum is also James' brainchild. His vision, in honor of his grandmother, is for the museum to present stories passed down of Elaine history from both black and white residents. He wants it to be the People's Museum, a way to share the stories that have been silenced for so long. He's hopeful that the museum will draw more visitors to the area and create a need for more businesses like a restaurant and a hotel. 
He talked a bit about the Delta Heritage bike trail that now connects Elaine to the north that doesn't seem to get used much. He thinks the $40 million, $20 million from the Waltons and $20 million from the government to build the trail could have been put to better use to help families create jobs or build school facilities or a swimming pool. I think perhaps the museum will help draw bicyclists to the area as well. Renovations on the old corner grocery store are underway to become the new Elaine Museum and Richard Wright's Civil Rights Center. The building will be dedicated on September 30th this fall on the 103rd anniversary of the massacre. Other activities are planned as well. And Dave Whitkey and I plan to attend going down a few days earlier before the rest of our group joins us on October 2nd for a week of hearing the stories from the locals visiting the sites of the massacre and help painted church. When the Elaine Legacy Tour Group first talked about a church service on this day, our intent was to culminate a school backpack drive for the kids in Elaine. However, thanks to the generosity and diligence of a handful of members, the backpacks have already arrived in Elaine. Instead, I invite you, if you are so inclined, to contribute instead to the Elaine Museum. You can't help others learn the stories of you can help others learn the stories of Red Summer that have been silenced for so long. Just go online to www.elainemuseum.org and click on the red donate link. And thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.